Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back. If this is your first time, then just welcome. This is That One Blank Friend. I am your host, Sadia Rashid. How are you guys doing out there? Boy, the world is getting crazy. Well, you know what? It, it's been crazy. 2020 has been crazy, but uh, the past week, man, it has uh, really hit us with a, a lot of um, unexpected things. So all I have to say is vote. <laughs> please vote. Please, please vote. Like Michelle Obama said today, our lives literally depend on it at this point. So despite the dumpster fire that is seemingly burning around us, I hope everyone out there is taking this opportunity to look inward a little bit and take care of yourself more. I was reading something the other day, kind of like not a horoscope, but kind of like this shamanic forecast. And they were saying that the theme for this month for October is just keep pushing, keep going, keep going, keep pushing through it. There are going to be so many obstacles mentally and physically. Um, I don't know if you guys feel drained. I feel drained, but I am just trying to spend the next couple of weeks for sure being patient with myself, with my energy level and loving on myself a little bit more and doing, you know, a little bit more self-care, taking moments of silence, breathing, exercising a little bit more, um, doing things that I love, dancing, singing. Some of that is in preparation for my solo show. But yeah, you know, just finding finding the joy uh, because we need those kernels to keep going right now. It is a tornado out there. My God. So I am so excited today. I think this is going to be a nice respite from uh, what we normally do. And also, this particular interview is a little off the beaten path of what I normally do as well. A little less interview, more uh, sitting back and listening to some cool travel stories. I have my friend today, Mark Schultz. We actually met, gosh, how long was has it been? like 12 years ago, I want to say 12, 13 years ago. I can't remember if I've mentioned it on the podcast already. But my husband and I we met in a sketch comedy group we were in together. So we performed a lot. And down the line, we were in desperate need at one point of someone who could do lighting and sound for our show. And we came across Mark, I believe from a Craigslist ad. And we loved him. And from that point on, he was like our guy for our shows. So Mark has done a lot of traveling. He has traveled extensively in South America and Central America. And so today um, he's going to talk about a little bit of those travels. We're going to focus a little bit more on the area of Guatemala because he spent a lot of time there. Um, So he has some really cool travel stories. And I hope that you guys enjoy them. I hope that you draw some inspiration. Maybe it'll get, you know, the juices flowing again about wanting to travel if you're missing it and you'll start thinking about the cool places you want to go. So if you are listening to this, just sit back, relax, do some cooking, you know, hope maybe you're in the bath, you got your iPhone on speaker, whatever. Just sit back and enjoy. All right, you guys, here's Mark. That's awesome. <laughs> How is your nephew? But uh, my little two-year-old nephew is now obsessed with guitar and Coco. Oh, uh, and yeah, and so, uh, it's kind of a natural pairing. But, and for whatever reason, he got obsessed with a song that they played at his preschool or daycare uh, called Chumala, where it's, it was kind of the Spanish thing, but it's like this skeleton that sings and became obsessed with skeletons. And so now skeletons and guitars are like his jam in life. <laughs> And that's part of the reason why I have this all set up now is because like I'll FaceTime with them and like he'll just walk up to my sister's phone and be like, guitars? And now it's just getting to the point where it's like, Mark, Uncle Mark, can you play guitar, please? And it's just the, oh, 
Oh, oh it's oh the God. best thing. Your heartstrings, yeah. yeah, so much. Yeah, so I, I have this whole setup largely so I can call up my nephew and let mom just sit nephew in front of the iPad and I can just play guitar and I'll just stare. And he, I bought him a little guitar for Christmas that was his. Oh, it's it's being an uncle's fun. Oh my God, that's so cute. Yeah, yeah I still remember that time when you stayed with us and you um played guitar for Sonar. Yeah. <laughs> first like no she just cried like, <laughs> she's startled yeah just terrified she started, like what is that yeah uh, but it's funny now like she she likes to air guitar and okay. like fake guitar she's still not attached to an instrument but she likes to pretend like she's in a band a lot so um that's fun um well we are here to talk about some traveling <laughs> we are travel stories uh, a few of them I've, I've mulled over trying to put down into any form of a show or monologue or some form, something to do with it. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think some of them are, are pretty out there that I scribbled some of the, my starters down. Sometimes we go on these travel, these trips and things go like perfectly to plan. And there's, you know, even if it's a really great trip, you know, plan, all the things kind of line up. And then sometimes you go on trips where you just keep getting thrown curveballs and right. you don't know where it's going to end up. And I had one of those in uh, when I went to Nicaragua for a month in 2013. Just gotten out of a relationship and my dad said, hey, let's, let's go somewhere. Let's do something. The idea was hatched. There's some islands off the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua called the Corn Islands, which are... Oh, I've got some sirens going on, but the Corn Islands off of Nicaragua are pretty amazing and pretty untouched. Well, I've just, never heard of it. The Corn oh, yeah. Islands. Okay. Most people haven't, and that's why they are pretty special. And so we kind of figured that out, and I had been to Nicaragua before, so I knew how to get around the mainland. I knew how cheap it was and, you know, how doable it would be to go for, you know, a period of time. And so we worked it out where I would be there for a month, and my dad was there for the first week. And as I was kind of planning it and figuring it out, I realized I had a friend down in, in this exact town that we we're going to go to called Granada. Uh, Granada. And so this friend of mine that I'd worked with in uh, Guatemala, was an American guy named Greg, bartended in Guatemala for a while and came up, saved up enough money to open up the branch of this Irish pub that originally started in Guatemala in Nicaragua. It's called Riley's. And I just so happened to be there for the last two weeks of prep opening night in the first two weeks of operation so, that's so funny that i feel like the an irish pub is the that's like the last thing i'd be looking for or expect to find in nicaragua this is the second irish pub in granada nicaragua as well there is definitely an element of uh tourist to it but it's obviously nothing like you know a cancun or cabo to that extent it's much more you know European backpackers and other Nicaraguans go there. It's a beautiful town that there's a street called La, uh, La Casada, which kind of just means the big street. And there's all these bars that open up and would be perfect now because they open up onto the sidewalk and they just set up all these, there's, it's just an entirely pedestrian street. They set up all these tables and you just order liters of the local beer, uh, Tonya or Victoria for a dollar or two and you get as many cups as you want and you just sit outside and drink these beers and you just get a liter after liter of beer it's fantastic and so there's <laughs> bar after bar after bar and one of them is another irish pub but so we were going there uh, my friend greg was opening up this other irish pub riley's and it was not on that main street my dad met greg and was hanging out with us and my dad's a very hands-on kind of guy i am too i've you know doing theater stuff forever and so we end up in this bar that needs things done that needs you know doors hung and the bar railing to be finished and this and that and all these other things and there's a team of local Nicaraguan guys and immediately my dad and I are just like we know how to do stuff and so we're put to work we're we're hanging up doors we're putting locks on them we're setting up the bathroom we're putting on you know the rolls for the toilet paper and uh what a vacation <laughs> yeah no, it is, we say that with my dad it'll be really difficult for him to retire because he'll still want to do stuff like right. when we when we've gone on vacation he's in the energy business and has worked in power plants and so like we've ended up in belize or somewhere and we'll rock around and we'll towards the outskirts of town so we'll see like or hear where the power plant is for town and we'll go and look at it and be like oh they're using diesel they could be a lot cleaner if they went to natural gas or like you can tell he's always thinking of something to do and so this was fun for him this is and for me it was fun to 
end up doing this. And then we'd go out together and drank beers. And I remember I got him really drunk one night and he got, I got him hung over. It was great fun. I have a picture of him eating bacon and drinking diet Coke the next morning, which is a a favorite of mine. (laughs) Bacon Uh, and diet Coke is a favorite of yours together. Oh no, that picture of him uh, is one of my favorites. (laughs) I was about Uh, to say, I was like, why? I want to know, like, what is there? What about that combo? It's just the picture that I know he's hung over and I've shared it like for Father's Day for several years. And it's like, he knows he's hung over in that picture. I know he is, but everyone else just thinks, oh, look at this. He's being a really, you know, kind son. Uh, the dream. I think that's a good dream is like, I, I have never really seen my parents drunk. I don't think. It's fun. So my dad and I were in Nicaragua, we go out to the Corn Islands. It was a blast. I come back, or we both come back. My dad goes back to the States, and I'm in Granada, and I'm helping my friend Greg open up the bar by myself now. And um, along the way, he realizes, oh, Mark, you know how to do audio stuff. Can you set up the sound system for the, the bar? We have the guys went in it, and they mounted the speakers. They have the cables running down, but no one knows how to connect everything and make it sound good. And I go, awesome, I'm your guy. So I'm setting everything up. And it sounds really good. And we're happy with how it's going. We have a soft opening. And this, I went down there in March. We had this soft opening. I forget what day of the week it was. But then the next day was officially St. Patrick's Day. (laughs) So we, yeah, we open up for St. Patrick's Day is essentially our first day of operation. And Greg had crossed all of his T's and dotted all of his I's for what he needed to do and was operating totally you know, had all the papers and permits to allow him to stay open till I believe it was three in the morning, which in hindsight is pretty late. Cause I remember recent experiences that a lot of places actually do shut down much earlier, but he had a paperwork for three in the morning, had a really, really top-notch lawyer in town, had met with the cops. The local cops had come by several times while we were working. We, we knew the local cops. We knew some of the, uh, at least one guy that was up there, Greg knew pretty well. And so we felt really good about how we we're doing things. And so we opened up and party on St. Patrick's Day until three in the morning. I remember, I think, yeah, it was early. It was probably, you know, four or five o'clock in the afternoon. And we had gotten every single can of Guinness in the country of Nicaragua that existed. We had in our bar. And so we had a fridge full of it. And I remember Greg said, "Uh, Mark, you've helped out so much. You don't have a tab at all tonight. And I go, fantastic. And had a, a, a lovely night. I, it's patchy. I think I ended up with a piece of glass in my foot the next morning. But, you know, it's, it's the fun of it. St. Patrick's Day at a new bar. You know, what's so interesting listening to all your stories and your travels is that it almost seems like everywhere you go, you always meet somebody that either owns a bar or owns a distillery or is involved in the liquor wine business. And it's so interesting. It's like you have this almost like this intrinsic connection to that it's, world. It's in the blood. On my dad's side, I had some family, I believe it was like a great uncle of my dad. So someone kind of distant, but there was a malting company that was owned by them in the Chicago area, like turn of the century that malted barley for brewing. And then I think by like the 30s or so, that great uncle ended up traveling around and worked as a consultant at breweries in Latin America. It's again, one of those weird connections. Um, So we opened up Riley's on St. Patrick's Day. A few days go by, kind of uneventful. And then one day, early afternoon, we're hanging out at the bar and uh, a truck pulls up outside that's Nicaraguan Federal Police. And a guy hops out from the uh, passenger seat that has, you know, epaulets on his shoulders and all kinds of medals right here. So we know we're not dealing with just some local guy. We don't recognize him at all. And he comes in and in English says, hey, who's Greg Miller? And he goes, that's the owner. You know, had a bit of an accent, but clearly someone we were terrified by immediately. (laughs) Yeah. And he goes, so we heard you just opened up this bar. We show him paperwork. Okay, we've talked to this person. All right, we understand everything's in order. Um, on St. Patrick's Day, we partied so loud that this new bar was close enough to the square and to the cathedral that our music from the bar kept the bishop or the cardinal or whatever head religious figure in the cathedral awake and couldn't sleep. So that priest called the local cops, and the local cops said, No, we know the guy, he's followed everything, he has everything in order. 
but then he went around it and called directly to the president of Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega, because there's a very close relationship between the president and the Catholic Church and said there's a, a foreigner that owns a new bar in Granada that's keeping me awake. And so basically we got orders directly from the president that he sent one of his guys to basically come and give us a warning to say, turn the music down. It's too loud. This is your first and last warning. <laughs> the fact that out of all the things that could be happening in Nicaragua, I mean, props to the, you know, sort of props to this religious figure, I don't know, cardinal, priest, whatever, that has that pull. But also, I'm thinking if the resources of Nicaragua are being used to tell bar owners to turn down music, then there's a huge gap in the structure of the way that country works. Oh, just a little <laughs> That's bit. That's a priority. There's, I mean, yeah, you can delve into, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of issues with how government and policing works in, throughout Latin America. Yeah, it, it was one of those that it happened pretty quickly. And I, I got out of there and Greg, you know, was there for about 30 minutes or so. I remember I got back to the bar. I think a lot of people left and I kind of checked in with Greg and he was like, we're going to close for the day. Let's go get a drink somewhere else. So we go to the Calzada and we just start ordering liters and liters of beer. And he looked like he had just seen a ghost because he'd put a lot, a decent amount of his own money into the place. And so we molded over and with some of the other people as well. And it was like, all right, well, we'll close early. We'll really keep it down for the next few weeks. Uh, we'll give some money to the Catholic church as a St. Patrick's day. Literally it's a Catholic thing. Uh, that we can do. And, and then we started for a period of time that that kind of became our, the mantra for the bar was that we party so hard that we pissed off the president that I think we got coo like beer koozies made for that, that had, you know, Riley's Granada, Nicaragua. And that l motto was on it. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> that's incredible. Like that's, it's just, like you said, it just goes to show how you can, think that a trip is going to go one way and then it just completely yeah goes left yeah 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 and so that was and then yeah spent those last few days did a little bit of work around the bar just you know bartending that someone had to be behind the bar and I was trusted and so spent a few days doing that and it was a much yeah it, it changed the the purpose of the trip for sure it became a much more okay you know what I'm just going to chill. Yeah, I haven't been back to Nicaragua since. Really would like to. But I did run, run into that owner, Greg. He eventually sold off his shares of that bar. We had a really nice steak dinner with another friend of ours from Luxembourg. And now I believe he lives in Lisbon, Portugal. And it's cool because, yeah, he's one of those people that I feel we could end up meeting in Ohio or Kuala Lumpur. And there is nothing weird about either of those settings. Right. Um, <laughs> two other kind of crazy stories, and I'll try to, one of them I, I can condense pretty well. This was more recently after I had been living in LA for a while and decided to move out in 2017. Moved out of my place and took the train down to Tijuana and traveled south through Mexico until I got to Guatemala. And so uh, one of the places that was very high on my list was Oaxaca, that I wanted to spend a decent amount of time there. That it's in southern. was that high on your list? Uh, it had always been really fascinating to me that that is the hub of mezcal production in in Mexico. Ah, okay. So specifically that, I wanted to go and drink. And if you've spent any time eating around in Los Angeles, Oaxacan Mexican is a very distinctive thing. Tlayudas and mole and the food jumped out. It's It's a very cultural hub of Mexico. I remember talking with my dad's business partner. We were up in Monterrey, Mexico at the time. And was telling him what my itinerary was, you know, going through the rest of Mexico and told him that I was going to spend, you know, uh, at least, you know, two weeks or so in Oaxaca. And he just kind of goes, oh, it's, it's, it's magic there. And so even within Mexico, it's kind of one of those places where you're like, there's a, there's a special quality to it. It's very indigenous. The food, the, the culture is very distinct. So I ended up in Oaxaca City which is this really beautiful colonial town. And the, yeah, just the food is amazing. You get outside of town, there's these amazing ruins. Oaxaca is a really, really special place. But I get to Oaxaca City, I have an Airbnb, and I'm exploring all the markets. And there's one market pretty close to the center of town that you walk around and there's, you know, it's pretty well divided that there's sections of fresh produce and there's sections of, you know, household goods and there's some sections of clothes. And then there's 
one section, uh, and some of these could be in different markets, but there's one section very distinctively that is called the Paseo de Carne Asada, and it's literally the hallway of grilled meat. And so there's, there's all these kind of communal tables that are scattered around, and then all of these stalls that have, you know, that look like a husband and wife cooking up food. And so it's mainly right there, it's all just carne asada, which is cecina, which is going to be pork, uh, tesajo, which is uh, like thin beef. And you can find these here in LA pretty readily. It sounds like a dream, a hall of meats. <laughs> it is. It's one of those that you, you would walk by and they have a door onto the street and you just kind of walk by and there's a haze from all of the, you know, wood smoke and you just get hit with wood smoke and sizzling meat. And it's one of those that I ate there pretty frequently when I was in Oaxaca because it's, you order a, a kilo of meat and tortillas and it's four or five bucks and that's lunch. It's amazing. And so I went there by myself uh, to get lunch and sat down and there's an old uh, Zapotec couple there. Zapotec is one of the predominant indigenous cultures in Oaxaca. And I could tell by the way that the woman was dressed and I believe they were speaking the Zapotec language back and forth to each other and uh, sit down with them. And eventually my food comes and you know, I say probecho, which is literally means benefit. You said buen probecho. It's like bon appetit and chat with them. And they're just kind of huh, weird foreigners keep coming here. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is fascinating. This food's delicious. I'm chatting with them for a little bit. And then before I know it, there's another couple that's sitting next to me and they're definitely not indigenous and they're speaking Spanish amongst each other. And I just kind of oh, acknowledge them. And I believe she first spoke to me in English and I was like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right. And then they spoke Spanish amongst each other. And I think she caught on to, that. I was able to speak Spanish with this older couple. And so then we started speaking more Spanish and I kind of realized that they had a few people in their group. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I noticed that then some of the other indigenous people in the market are coming up to them and they're buying them lunch. They're like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll get, you know, half a kilo for her. Do you, what do you want, you know, the beef or the pork, you know, oh yeah, we'll, we'll get you lunch. It's cool. I'm just like, oh, these people are really generous. That's, that's really kind of them. That, they're, they're, that there is a very stark difference between the indigenous Mexico or throughout Latin America of indigenous cultures and the more European descendant cultures that you find in the cities. And so the term for that I've heard frequently for a wealthy, more European person from a city is called a fresa, which literally means strawberry, which I really love that term, where it's like, <laughs> we would say that at when running the bar, where it's like, oh, we've got a group of fresas coming in. And you could tell that they're wearing these polo shirts that are very crisp. They, you know, probably studied and went to university in Florida, or there's, there's a type. And you, I could tell they, they weren't quite that, but they spoke English and they had enough money that they were buying lunch for everyone. All these other vendors were coming up and it was a, I figured out that it was a mother and a son. And I could see on the back of the mom's shoulder or kind of arm was a tattoo and I could see dates on it and like a face. And I was like, oh, someone must have died and she got a tattoo for that. It's like, oh, it's kind of weird that that's visible. You don't really see that a whole lot in Mexico. And then they keep buying people food and they're talking to me a little bit. And I'm like, oh man, this is so good. You know, I'm from California. And they say, oh yeah, we're from uh, Acapulco, but sometimes Baja as well. Uh, and it's like, oh, okay. Interesting that those are very, definitely Baja's more touristy. Acapulco was touristy and now has some issues going on there with cartels and uh, I kind of go, Oh, okay, cool. And now we're talking, we're eating. And then I kind of realized that there's a couple guys standing around with them that are in the hallway that have earpieces in. And I'm like, huh, I guess this mom and son have bodyguards with them. That's, that's crazy. Oh, those bodyguards definitely have guns. The son has some tattoos too. Oh boy. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to ask a whole lot more questions about what these guys do. I'm just going to yeah. be really quiet and enjoy this and be super friendly. <laughs> and so we just kind of finished lunch. We're talking and I'm getting, you know, telling them, oh yeah, I went to this mezcal place, uh, Palenque, where they distill mezcal and it was really good. I was like, oh yeah, we're looking at getting into the mezcal business that there's, uh, we have, you know, looking to invest or to diversify some funds. And it was just like, cool. This food where else can you get like just trying to not talk about yeah. what they do because i immediately was like there's three armed guards for two people that both have visible tattoos speak english and say they're from a town that has a pretty known cartel problem and so just kind of finish up my lunch i think they were still eating and i got out of there early because i was rattled because i enough thoughts went through my head and i remember getting out of there and i called my dad your dad was working where at the time? in mexico he kind of 
processed what I was telling him. He was like, oh, did you leave in one piece? And was like, yeah, I think I'm good. And it was like, I think I just had lunch with Narcos. Like, it was a pretty intense little moment of like, oh, right. I am very out of place here. Yeah. Because I've been in Monterey with my dad's business partners who were also, you know, came from old money. But they, we went around a lot of places there. They didn't have armed guards. And it's like to have been around that, you know, some degree of, you know, wealth within Mexico where they're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's safe. You know, things are good. But to have a three to two ratio for armed guards, and I would imagine they both probably had some weapons on them as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was a, an interesting lunch. So you did you ever get to ask anybody around like who those who exactly those people were? Not in the market, but it's one that I've I res- told that story to enough people in Mexican friends and Guatemalan friends, and they were both like, "Oh yeah, they deal in funny money." Like whether or not they're necessarily the people that are their hands are directly involved in you know really shady things, or if they're doing really questionable financial dealings. Uh, I remember the woman was like offering, some indigenous woman came up to her and she was like, I I can't see out of this eye. And the woman like pulled out a pretty sizable stack of cash and wrote down the information for an eye doctor in Mexico City for her. Where it's like, it was a straight up Robin Hood thing. Yeah. This sounds very Pablo Escobar-ish. Yeah. I I mean, mean, the the stories that I've heard in Northern Mexico with um, El Chapo or other cartel kingpins or whatever is that they'll go into a restaurant that they really want to go to and they'll go in with their team of bodyguards or whatever the bodyguards will go in first and they'll go okay we have someone that wants to dine here but wants the utmost privacy you have to give us all your cell phones right now he'll pay for the bill but just have a meal don't take any pictures you don't this didn't happen right mind your business mind your business and we'll mind yours we'll pay for your meal just he wants to have dinner let him have dinner without, you know, being upfront about it. And he'll finish his meal, pay, pay for everyone, and then give the cell phones back. So I don't know if there's truth or validity to that, but that sounds like a very gangster move, whether you're in 30s, 1930s Chicago or present-day Mexico. That sounds like a, I have this much power and I want to do things. And it is that Robin Hood aspect to it as well. So yeah, that was... A weird the, lunch. Yeah, and the fact that it's so, um, it's interesting because as an American, you know, when you go to countries like this or places where you are out of your element, we're used to like, like you said, narcos, like we're used to watching it on TV and being separated from it. Mm-hmm. And also when you when you see movies like that of like things that happen in different countries, yeah, a lot of times it is sensationalized. Um, but I think because you feel like it's sensationalized on TV to not believe that that could actually happen mm-hmm. because there's a distancing from being mm-hmm. in, you kind of go to other countries and you view it as like an experience that you're not a part of instead of like you are being immersed in a different environment and you have to respond to that environment differently than you would if you were in America. I thought, I mean, yeah, we, we met each other doing comedy and it's very much that same saying yeah read the room yeah like whether it's traveling or doing comedy you know you have to be super aware of your environment and how to adapt or to that setting or these circumstances to get what you want out of that situation if it's making someone laugh or getting lunch yeah yeah that was one of those that i definitely remember at the time being like oh this is this is definitely an odd one. And uh, another one of those times that I had that was, I didn't realize how weird it would get until it was, we the weekend was over. And uh, even now it's one that I look back on with a lot of, that I still haven't totally sorted out because it's frankly quite sad. Um, so this would have been the beginning of June when I, uh, so I was working at Cafe Nose that I think I, we never quite made that full circle in the last podcast is that I got, I told the story about getting the job offer because of job ja rule and the fire festival that all of oh, my right, friends, right. All the bartenders were there and the manager offered me a job. And I said, well, I'm kind of fit, booked up for the next few months. If I came back in October, would that happen? And so I went back uh, eventually taught English on the lake for a while, went to Europe and then got back to Antigua in October, fulfilling that promise. And I remember walking in the bar and being like, hey, you offered me a job, I'm back. And he was like, okay, I didn't think that would happen, but 
yeah, I think we can find some space for you. And within about a, uh, a month or so, I got promoted to manager. So it just happened really quickly that I ended up running this bar in, in Guatemala, uh, Cafe Nose, where the owner of it started the place in, what, 2003. He was from New York and left New York after 9-11, just kind of said, I'm done with this. He had a corporate job. Uh, I'm going to Mexico. He traveled a bit beforehand. And so he ended up uh, in Guatemala and started this bar kind of by chance, coincidence that he was down, had very little money left and started this bar and called it Cafe Nose because he couldn't think of a name and he didn't have a liquor license. So he called it a cafe, cafe I don't know, because he had to put something down on the business license. And so he just called it Cafe Nose. And for the first few years, uh, for a stretch of time, he didn't have a liquor license. So you would go in and ask for a uh, Te Blanco, white tea, and you'd pull up bottles of booze. And that would be, you know, how you'd get drunk in, in the place because he couldn't legally couldn't sell it. Uh, and then eventually he started, well, he had spent time in Oaxaca before that and really fell in love with Mezcal and started uh, going up to Oaxaca with some frequency and bringing back some bottles across the border to sell at the bar because that, he couldn't find anything, any Mezcal in Guatemala at the time. He could just find pretty, you know, Jose Cuervo and maybe like Hornitos or a big brand of tequila was all that was available. So he started going up to Oaxaca and bringing back mezcal to supply the bar. And it quickly became the most popular thing in the bar. And it kept, it grew to the point where he was going several times a week or several times a month and was bringing friends and they were stuffing duffel bags full of bottles and they were not declaring it crossing the border, not paying taxes on it. So they quickly became booze smugglers. And so that's, uh, it eventually kept growing to now the point where he has, yeah, Illegal Mezcal is the brand that you can find in the United States and around the world. Bacardi is a minority investor. Uh, and yeah, it's all based out of this bar in Guatemala that I first ended up in, in 2008. And then by yeah, 2018, I was managing. Uh, and so the summer or June comes around and, um, he was in, t the owner was in town and it was one of those rules that like when John, when the owner's in the bar, that kind of meant you could stay open however late you wanted to, that you, he, you would never leave the owner there by himself, that they always had to have some staff or some people there because that was his place that he, at this point in time, he's so up to his eyeballs in dealing with an international alcohol brand and all of the rules and regulations that go with that, that to have a little bar in Guatemala where he can say, change the music, the music that we're playing here. And no one, there, there doesn't have to be a meeting in an email chain to change the music. So it's the place where he can just, it, it's, uh, his happy place still. And right. so um, there was one night, yeah, it would have been the first of June because I was staying in a friend's house uh, for the first time and I had to pay rent and uh, I had to go to a bank and hand over cash to get deposited into an account to pay the rent. And I ended up going to the wrong bank. And so I remember it being the first because I ended up having my entire stack of rent money in cash in my jacket pocket the whole night. And so uh, I go, all right, well, I'll take care of it on the second. It'll be fine. And, um, or whatever the hell day it became these days kind of blur together this weekend. Um, so I was working the mezcal bar. There's one of the rooms in the, in, in cafe no say is specifically just a mezcal bar. All they serve there is beer and mezcal. They don't serve water. It's just those two things. There's a sign that says two shot minimum. It's, one of the coolest it looks like a tarantino movie film set it is there's uh, i know it's been in the new york like when it's been in yeah. the new york times i know when we went to guatemala for a friend's wedding i was so bummed we didn't a bunch of people from the the party did go um but that was the night where we were just like we're tired and we ended yeah up, and we thought we were gonna have another chance and it was like that was it that was the chance uh, to go to cafe no say so now we got to go back for that experience yeah I'll, come with me i'll take you I'll, okay. I'll show you guys around um and so i was working behind the mescal bar that night so it was um i was you know had a good night, was selling drinks. And that weekend, I had known some good friends over on the lake that was about Lake Atilan, about two hours, two, three hours away, were leaving Guatemala that had been in Guatemala for quite a while. So they were having, it was, this was a Friday night, Saturday night was their going away party out on the lake. So I had known that, uh, yeah, first thing Saturday morning, a 
they were friends of many people in Antigua. So there was a group of us from Antigua that had rented a private uh, shuttle to get us over to the lake. And we were all meeting up at the restaurant across the street from the bar at like nine, nine or 10 in the morning to go over to the lake. So I was like, oh man, it's going to be a long night of be, you know working until two and then having to wake up uh, to meet people at nine to spend three hours in a shuttle isn't the most comfortable thing to do, but it's like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll power through. I'll go home. I'll get some, I'll I'll go home. I'll get some sleep. I'll grab basics. I'll go, um, working at night. And then John shows up the owner and, uh, yeah, I guess I'll say his name, John. Uh, there's a couple of them. Uh, he shows up and it's like, all right, cool. We'll, we'll hang out until John takes off. And so, the bar closes up. Another friend of ours in town uh, hangs out that night, yeah, uh, and is dealing with issues with rent for her cafe. And so the bar closes up, and we're just in the back. And it's myself, the other uh, manager who's been there a while, the owner, and this other girl, Molly, who we're talking about, you know, business in Antigua and all the things. She leaves, and it's just myself, the manager, and the owner. And the manager and the owner are very good friends. They've known each other for a long time. And uh, it's just the three of us. And we're just sitting in the back, drinking and drinking and sharing stories. And we're going through bottles of the Añejo Mezcal, which is the age stuff that is over $100 a bottle. And he's, we're mixing it with Coca-Cola. Like, he's just like, no, just bring a bottle back. I'll pay for it. Put it on my tab. It's fine. And so it's just one where like, okay, we're mixing this incredibly subtle, you know, complex booze with Coca-Cola and we're just drinking in the back. Someone at one point, someone busts out weed cookies. Um, they bust out just, weed cookies. Yeah. We, we all eat weed cookies at like, you know, four in the morning because that's a wise move. Oh, uh, doing it, man. <laughs> uh, we just keep drinking and then at probably about six o'clock, uh, the, the morning cleaning crew shows up and they see us there and they just laugh at us in the, in the back room. And uh, we then realize like, oh, it's six o'clock. That means the Pina, the restaurant, the breakfast restaurant across the street that John also owns uh, is open for breakfast at seven. So let's drink a few more. And then at seven o'clock, let's go across the street and get breakfast. Awesome. Literally, that's why he opened up that breakfast spot was so we could drink until seven in the morning and go get breakfast immediately. Uh, and so we go over there and it's just the three of us, we get breakfast. Uh, Freddie's the other manager is out of it. He's like, guys, I have to manage all night tonight. I'm out of here. I'm going. And so he leaves. And so then it's just me and the owner and we're shot for shot, still drinking. It's you're still drinking. Oh yeah. We after did you had breakfast. Oh yeah. We're, we're drinking while we had breakfast. Oh my God. Uh, and then we're sitting in the uh, breakfast place. There's a couple other people that have scattered around. And eventually, you know, we're talking and it would just start kind of fading. And John, I remember he has his hand on his table, on the table. And um, I remember that John has a problem with gluten and we ate those wheat cookies and he starts kind of coughing and then he throws up all over his restaurant. <gasps> And I have all of my rent cash. I just pull that out and I paid everyone's breakfast like a fucking mafioso. It was, I paid off the kitchen staff that had to clean it. I was like, we'll settle this out. John's not feeling well. Let's get him home. And so I go to the, the bouncer who for the bar lives next door as well. I, I'm like, can we call someone? His truck's right here. Let's get John out. Somehow I snap out of it and I become super sober. Let's help the boss man out. And so I take care of him and he's on, uh, I get a driver to come and that knows where he lives to drive him home in his truck and drop him off at home. And uh, he's just leaning there on a the table going, and I go, Hey, John, John, there's, there's a driver here. I'll take you home. You'll feel better. And he just goes, shh, just be groovy. Just be groovy. <laughs> and then leans back over. And I'm like, oh, fuck. And now it's getting closer to like, closer to nine o'clock. The restaurant where this big group of friends that all know the owner as this, you know, revered boss man, patriarchal figure in town. And he is thrown up all over the place. And it is the back room. Uh, unable to function and I'm trying to get him home and everyone that knows him and works for, or a group of 10 people that know him and work for him and look up to him are about to show up and I'm like John you really should get out of here and he was like no and so eventually you get him into a hidden at least people our friends start showing up we start ordering breakfast they start ordering beers I have a beer with them 
uh, I pull one of my friends aside that had worked with the owner very closely. And I go, John's in the back. We've been up drinking all night. And he just looks at me and he goes, how are you talking? And I was like, I want to know. I mean, between all those drinks, the shots, uh, I don't don't know. I don't know. This, this is one of the, 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 this is one of these weekends that probably took some time off of my, uh, life expectancy, but it, I, I snapped out of it really quickly and I sobered up immediately and I was like, I got it. It's the boss that I remember one of the first things after starting working there, we all one like Sunday morning, we went to the nicest place in town for brunch after a late Saturday night. And it was one of those that our whole crew showed up, the owner, the woman that is the uh, COO, the operating officer for the alcohol brand was down there as well. We all go to this nice place, hung over as hell, and we're all doing shots where there's, you know, wealthy, you know, foreign tourists that are spending $150 a night on their hotel room and $12 on Eggs Benedict. We're doing shots. And I remember leaving uh, there and thinking... I made a post about it. It was like, I'm not sure if I joined a cult or the mafia where it was like, there was just this weird collective sense where it was like, if the boss man says do something, we'll do it. And uh, we had a blast doing it. Um, but so John is passed out in the back. I eventually get around and I call his assistant. He had an assistant at the time and laid out what happened. And she got rushed over there immediately and was able to get him actually to that same hotel, took him to that hotel where we had brunch and uh, put him up for the rest of the day. But by that point in time, a group of us, we were all in the shuttle heading back over to the lake for our friends going to the wave party. And I'm there. I didn't get to go home and sleep, shower, get clothes, get a toothbrush, nothing. I am playing through and we're, I'm going for a night away. And uh, we get on the bus. We're all drinking beers. Bottles of mezcal go around. More weed cookies come out. Uh, we stopped for food somewhere in the middle of the way. I remember that. And then we got to the lake. Some people went to a bar in one town and me and my friend got on the boat. We went out to where our friend already was. And which is also a hostel where I'd worked. Like one up there. And we get there for their Saturday night barbecue going away party. And their Saturday night barbecue is where they would have the cross-dressing parties. So I, I literally had no clothes, but they have a closet full of cro- cross-dressing clothes. So I just wore cross-dressing clothes the entire, I had a dress and I think it was, a, I changed. I had, I had several different looks that night, uh, but I definitely had a few pieces uh, that were in that costume closet that I had bought for myself because it's difficult to find extra large women's clothing in Guatemala for, for my frame. Uh, <laughs> And so we go there and we have this amazing party for going away party. I believe uh, mushroom chocolates came out and I was up later than everyone else partying that night. Wait, 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 wait. So let me just give the right. Yeah, there there was a lot there. You've Uh, had tons of mezcal, tons of beer, mm -hmm. a weed cookie, more beer. Yeah, yeah. More weed weed cookies. I did get in there and you have chocolate mushrooms. Yeah. While, while, while drinking more, yeah. But I did get about a th- two or three hour nap in midday. So I believe That's someone has, has pictures of me dancing in a dress somehow awake. Uh, and then crashed hard that night. And the next morning, uh, Sunday, there was another spot on the lake that there was a guy from, I believe he was from Florida, that on Sundays would do, Sunday bar- would do barbecue, like proper Southern pulled pork ribs, brisket, you know, coleslaw, uh, the whole thing, the whole works. And it was one where it was like, I think, yeah, you just got the meat and there was like a buffet on all the sides and they'd have drink specials. And it was a place that had a pool and it was kind of a, a known hangover kind of recovery spot for a lot of foreigners. And so a bunch of us from that party uh, went there or at least four, five, six, four or five of us did. And we go over there and we're eating more. Yeah. This, really great barbecue as good a barbecue as you can find in Guatemala and then someone walks through that has these gallon jugs of clear liquid in them and our friends on the lake go oh and we know what that is that's kusha which is kusha is like the locally made fire water that is rough fire water distilled spirit it's homemade moonshine uh you have and- some oh we started doing shots of Kusha poured from a gallon milk jug, a used gallon milk jug that I think they were, it was something that they were, they're like 
30 cents a piece. And so we're just doing them while we're eating our breakfast or our lunch like or whatever the, the hell time it is. party is missing is like you guys dancing around a fire and an orgy. <laughs> I, I'm not telling you all of my stories. Uh, yeah. And so we're there and it's, it ended up being my profile picture uh, on Facebook for a period of time. I remember we're, seeing this. We were sitting on these uh, plastic lawn chairs and I remember the legs to the, my plastic lawn chair fell out and I just said, no. And I just put my hands behind my head and I just laid there and a friend took the picture of, of it. And I'm, yeah, it, it was one of those that I just was filthy everywhere. I was just sweating booze and drugs and was just out of it. We were, it was a long weekend. And as we were sitting there having lunch, I was a, just initially really bummed out that my friends, uh, Sam and Natalia were leaving Guatemala because I'd known them for quite a while. And I've hung out with them multiple times since. Uh, went to a surprise birthday party for Sam in Mexico City, which was a blast as well. Uh, but as we're sitting there, you know, enjoying our time with our, our friends before they leave uh, the country, they moved to Mexico. And, uh, we're kind of wrapping up and we start checking our phones on social media. And one of the things that we noticed uh, in, in Antigua is that there's, there's three volcanoes that are right over Antigua. There's the big one is called Agua. There's one called the Acatenango, which is really popular for people to hike. And then right next to Acatenango is one called Fuego, which you hike up Acatenango and you can get to Fuego and it's called Fuego because it's an active volcano and it's actively erupting. You can see it from, you walking around the streets of Antigua. You'll see, you know, little, poofs of smoke in uh every now and then sometimes on dark clear nights you can see it glowing red and but when you hike it you get up there and you can basically look down into this crater i, I never did it because i'm fat lazy and hung over all the time but um yeah it's, it, walking around was always one of those you know real highlights of the town where you go wow look at this beautiful volcano and as we're having lunch, we go through our feed, people are posting pictures of, you know, ash clouds over Fuego. And it's like, oh, that's big. That seems really, actually really pretty big. And I remember sending a message to Freddie, me like, Fuego is really going off. And he was like, yeah, we don't have sun anymore. It erupted enough that it was starting to block out the sun. And it eventually ended up raining ash that it was as it was a, a hundred year eruption of this volcano that pretty quickly kind of sobered us up in a lot of ways because uh, then we eventually got back to the shuttle that was taking us back to Antigua and it was a mix of yeah there was some you know foreigners like myself and some local Guatemalans as well uh, and we're all on our phones kind of looking through what's happening and we're talking to our driver and we're like yeah this is this is pretty serious and at some it was on the road that we heard the first like oh yeah someone's died from this and it was like oh this is going to be pretty bad if this is a bad eruption. And we get back to, or by the time we're, there's a town called Chimaltenango and we get stuck in traffic there. It's as you're approaching Antigua. And as we're there, it's just, it was becoming night, but it was had, the sunset was so eerie. It was just this red, orange color. And we started hearing the ash falling on the roof of our car that, oh, wow. we, that, that we were in. And we eventually get back into Antigua. And as soon as we get out, you can just see this haze around all of the lights. You could hear this sound on the streets. Oh, about a half inch of ash, depending on where you were in the town, got dumped. Um, you'd feel it in your eyes. You'd feel it in your teeth. There was a grittiness to it. Uh, and I remember going back to the bar that night. Uh, immediately went back to the bar after getting dropped off uh, and the owner was there as well. And we just kind of, we, we gave each other a look of like, how are you doing? And he was like, I'm, I'm here. I'm doing okay. And I go, I think I'm doing the same as well. And I think we did another shot of Mezcal and we kind of talked, but at the room in the, the atmosphere in the room was immediately like, this is, this is a really bad, this is a big problem that just happened with Fuego. And it became really clear because the next night I was working, I was behind the mezcal bar and there was a pretty solid contingent. There was one girl in particular, Chelsea, that started to go fund me really quickly and ended up raising tens of uh, over 10, or like I want to say $10,000 plus or minus some figure pretty quickly. And the bar became a nonprofit strategy planning room. And we started realizing the extent of how bad this eruption was, that there were two villages on the slopes of, uh, of the volcano, San Miguel Los Lotes and El Rodeo, that got hit with the pyroplastic flow, flow that buried two entire towns with basically no warning. Uh, 
I remember a few days, uh, yeah, we raided um, our stock room for water and donated that at the bar. Uh, NGOs started showing up in town, uh, specifically uh, the one that we got to know was World Central Kitchen. Jose Andres specifically came into the bar a couple times and quite a few of those people I got to know because they were down there for a stretch and are still actively involved with them that are up in Northern California right now or heading to the, the Gulf Coast to deal with, to help feed people. Um, and I remember a few days had gone by and a friend showed up at the bar while I was working who's a photographer, a really serious photographer, Guatemalan himself, Santiago Billy. Uh, and his stuff got has been picked up by the AP and the Reuters and the European Press Agency. He's a really serious photojournalist. And he was one of the first six photojournalists that was allowed into one of these towns, either San Miguel Azotes or El Rodeo. And uh, he'd been sharing pictures that, you know, just pulling remains of, you know, human remains out of buildings and entire buildings that are covered in 10 feet of ash that they're buried. They're gone. It was, I mean, it's, it's the same thing that happened to Pompeii to these two villages essentially. Um, and I remember talking to him and saying something along the lines of like, well, yeah, I've, I've heard at least the last government figure was that they have confirmed 300 people dead and another 300 or so missing. And I remember he, he took a drag from a cigarette and just kind of looked at me and he goes, you can't be declared missing if all of your friends, all of your family, and all of your neighbors are missing too. Oh, God, and, so devastating. And that's so true. Cause like there, that makes you really realize it could have been a lot more people, but how would we know if also their the, community yeah. is gone, you know? Yeah, the, the word that we had heard amongst the locals and of several nonprofits is the, the official government number ended up being around, I want to say 450 or so people perished, but I've heard from moderately, you know, pretty reliable sources that there's probably an extra zero on that number of, of people that actually perished. It, it was a very, very bizarre weekend. It, it went from, Oh man, hung out with my boss and my two bosses who I you know look up to and respect and I outdrank them. And I, like, I remember telling my buddy that it was like, you're going to be a legend for this. And it was like, Oh yeah, like let's go for it. And then just so suddenly they turned on. No, 4,000 people probably just died. And it's like, it, it kind of put into focus what the hell I was doing there in some reason where it's such a blast to just, you know, get drunk and consume all the time. But is that, the point or the purpose or what I should really be getting taken away from this. So yeah, it was a very sobering weekend. And in hindsight, I do wish I had such commitments to that bar of running it on a daily basis that I wish I I had more free time to have done more with world central kitchen or any of the other number of nonprofits that were down there. Um, Yeah. But it was really beautiful to see how that community did come together that every bar and restaurant in town was donating stuff or collecting goods or trying to house people. I remember a friend of mine uh, put together a website that one of the places that, hey, just to highlight the weird disparities of it all is that one of the things that was affected was a golf course that was right there, that there was a golf course that catered to people, you know, foreigners and wealthy people in Antigua to go golfing. That was literally right on the slopes and that got completely, almost completely taken out. And I don't think it's reopened since. And I mean, it, that employed a significant amount of the people that worked there that lived in these villages. And so this friend put together a website of everyone that was, that used to work at the golf course uh, of, you know, they have these skills, they can cook there, you know, they can clean, they can do this, they're gardeners, they're this or that, what their skills were to try to get them reconnected with work. And uh, yeah, it was heartening to see, yeah, people really come together and support these villages, but it was still one of those weekends I don't think I've fully figured out what it meant or what I should have taken away from it because of the extremes of it. Yeah. I mean, that, that the extreme is so, you know, it's that stuff that you just feel like you see in movies where yeah. it's those type of drastic extremes do actually happen. And yeah, both of them, the, the excessive partying and the excess, the extreme damage where it's yeah. like, both of those, uh, you know, are cinematic in ways where it's, but never in the same movie. It's weird what? to have that, that experience in one. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a lot. Yeah. It's, it's a weird story and a weird experience that I've gone through. So I, I'm, it's, this has been over two years ago that this happened. 
and I still don't know exactly what to put on it. I mean, just kind of the randomness of these things that happened. There was like how many other weekends or other times that I did I have a Friday night where I just went home. It's like, and nothing happened. It's, yeah, there, there is just an inherent degree of randomness. Yeah. That just, and maybe that's the impact that is just yeah. a Things reminder just, of, of the randomness of life. Yeah. That life is and can be that random. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and the limits to it, that it's temporary. And it's, yeah, it's like if we had a serum to live forever, would that make life meaningful? Where it's like part of what makes these experiences special is knowing that it's we're on a finite timeline. Yeah, that's true. And that we have a certain amount of time to um, absorb those experiences and learn from them and, you know, do better from them if possible. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, this is... It's just still very much on the surface for me right now. And uh, I think you definitely noticed and commented on it that one of the the people that was, the girl that was in the back room with the owner and the manager was this girl, Molly, that owned a cafe in Antigua. And last week in Costa Rica while doing yoga, she collapsed at 29 and died. Wow. Yeah, I remember seeing that post. And yeah, it's like, those are the experiences where it's like, oh, it's... And now, yeah, her boyfriend was also from Antigua, is an Australian guy. They ended up living in Costa Rica. Her family's from Los Angeles. So when I first met her, I was like, oh, we're both LA people. And after, yeah, she passed away, her family figured out how to get her remains back to Los Angeles. And the boyfriend was like, I, I'm, I have to go with you. I'm coming with, I'm going there. I'm going to California. And so he's uh, someone that I had never really directly met, but we definitely knew each other. I think he came into the bar a few times. He ran a hostel that I think I went into a few times as well. And uh, I, I did find out that he's in Los Angeles right now as well. And I did just reach out to him and we formally friended each other on Facebook. And I said, hey man, we never really met, but I knew Molly and uh, I can't imagine what you're going through, but if you need a friend in LA, I'm here. And so we've been talking at some point, we'll get a beer. But we talked about just what a special place, yeah, Antigua was, where it's like we're still still bringing people together, even though we're going to be in LA. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like that particular area of Guatemala and South America for you and for other people also, it feels like this kind of space where all of these people randomly come together um, but somehow you guys end up being connected through these other ways, whether it's through other people or similar experiences or similar passions. You know how people talk about there are certain like areas in the world where they hold, I don't know if you've heard of this, where they hold like some, some energetic power to it. Mm -hmm. It feels like for you that part of the world holds that for you oh. because it draws you it keeps drawing you in and yeah, the other absolutely. people i feel like that you meet are drawn there for that same reason so you guys are kind of like connected in this weird way for life like this life connection yeah a really weird fascinating mixing of people that goes on that yeah will always be very special to me and i think there's there's pockets of that all over the world which is really cool and it's yeah, I feel really fortunate and special to have tapped into one of those little pockets. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a place like that, like you said, for everyone. I think there are a lot of those places. And I think if you are a traveler, there's a space that you are going to, if you travel enough, you will find a place that holds that energy for you, that, that has that same love and connection um, and energetic compatibility. Um, so it's, yeah. it's nice that you know your spot because, you know, a lot of people travel and don't travel enough to find that place. Yeah. Would you ever want to move back there permanently? I can't remember if I asked that question already. I don't know. Towards the end when I was working at the bar, it definitely became a lot, just the physical toll of drinking as much as I was and the hours that I kept. I felt like I was really hard on my body in a lot of ways and just hard on me mentally and I had long kind of, yeah, mulled over the idea of trying to be able to split my time. That I remember seeing, uh, or just the term like seasonal resident or like partial expat. 
I mean, yeah, it would be really cool to be able to go back and forth between LA and Guatemala would be really cool because there is such a strong connection between those two locations anyway. I'm, I'm, I live in MacArthur Park, which is the largest Central American community in the United States. The, I have a neighbor that's from Guatemala. I have, and it, it is really cool to have gained the language skills that I have now because I have multiple families in my building that I exclusively speak Spanish with. And I know that I am viewed in a much different way by the Miguel and hell, the old guy that smokes cigarettes on the stoop of my building. He sees me much differently. And I remember the other day walking past him and he said something along the lines of, you know, color como perro. At least that's what I heard, which I guess would be an expression of like hot as a dog. And I said back without thinking, you know, demasiado color. Oh, it's too hot. And he goes, you know, laughs at that. And I just immediately go, you know, feliz, di or, yeah, feliz dia, have a good day or happy day. And he just, uh, igualmente, you too. And it was just four really simple lines of Spanish dialogue. But it, yeah, it helps us connect in a way. That's probably the best thing that I've taken away from it. And I could see having that connection here in LA to tie it back now that I remember what the question was. To be able to go back and forth between LA and Guatemala would be really, really special. I'd really love to be able to do that even if it's just for a month out of the year, that I have so many friends there that last time I've had friends that have gotten upset with me because I booked an Airbnb for myself and didn't stay in their guest room. <laughs> so I always feel like I, I have a place there. Yeah. Well, it's interesting also what you said about living in your apartment building now and, and that older gentleman that you feel like he sees you. But I, I think what's also interesting is that what I think resonates with him is that he feels seen. Mm -hmm. You know, you being this white guy living in LA, being surrounded in this area, honestly, a lot of people, they expect for you to come in there and not understand their community or really want to be a part of it. Yeah, and, so, and open up a, a minimalist coffee shop or a fancy jam-based breakfast restaurant. Yeah. And so, you know, you talking to him on his level and like using his native language and seeing who he is, mm -hmm. it's a great relationship to start on that level or of you understanding his background a lot more than he would expect. Yeah, it's, it really surprises people. And I feel like it's something that I, I do feel incredibly fortunate to have traveled. And if there's, yeah, I'm really glad that that's my takeaway from that is a skill set and a linguistic skill that allows me to connect more with my immediate community here in LA. Mm, I love that. You know, I think we're going to, I think we're going to end it right there. But before we end, I, if people want to follow Mark and his travels and his life, where can they go? Uh, I've be my Instagram. I'm uh, at Dr. Mark Schultz. So it's just Dr. Mark Schultz. There's a uh, too many other Mark Schultzes out there. Uh, so I had to fake a medical degree. Um, <laughs> doctor of socialized medicine. Yes. <laughs> Well, thank you, Mark, for coming on today and talking about all of your travel stories and just your perspective and just your life. Like, I, I, there's so much I didn't even know about you and how all of this was brought forth. So um, thank you for sharing your stories today. I had, a, I had a really great time and can't wait to see you again. Had a great time talking to you. Yeah, you too. Oh man, I just love the way it comes full circle for Mark with where he is living now and how he, in a way, gets to be immersed in a culture that he loves. And I don't know, I just feel like it is very much a part of his travel identity and very much just a part of who he is as a person of always wanting to learn more and his way of learning is just going for it and being immersed in it whatever it is so I hope you guys enjoyed that interview I know Mark is actually he's starting a business uh, with a friend that's what he's doing in quarantine he is starting a business uh, building a hand painted guitar pedals so he is actually doing the machinery part of it creating the pedals and then he has an artist friend that's doing the designing so maybe you know once that gets up and going I'll have him come back and we can kind of talk a little bit about that because that's really cool and um, if that's something you're interested in reach out to him hit him up on uh, Instagram maybe become his friend on Facebook I don't know 
hit them up. Just say hi. Tell them what you think about his stories. Switching gears. We're at the end of this. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to that one blank friend on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating. Hopefully it's a five star. It better be. And, you know, subscribe if you haven't already. Tell your friends about it. Follow us on all the social medias where we're at. Let me know how you feel. Let me know what you want. Who do you want to hear from in the past? I know you don't know who my friends are, but maybe you have a friend out there that you want to introduce me to. I am open. I want to hear from you guys. So let me know. And with that being said, I mentioned in the last episode that I'm doing a solo show. And guess what? It was postponed. It is now November 7th. It was supposed to be this past weekend, but we unfortunately had to reschedule it, which is also sort of a good thing. So I am excited uh, to be doing 10 minutes of my solo show called Mama. It is for the Black Voices Festival that is at the White Fire Theater. It is live. It is virtual. You can watch anywhere, anytime. Well, not anytime. Uh, It's at 7 p.m., but you can get a ticket. For that day, November 7th at 7 p.m., I will provide the link in the show notes. I hope to virtually see you there. All right, guys, I got to get back to my day. Um, Have a great week. I will see you next time.